Today's passage of scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as Angie comes up and read for us. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we have talked about darkness and light before. It's a very common theme throughout the Bible. And the more you consider it, and especially when you consider the fact that The beginning of the Bible, which essentially is the story of the history of the world, begins with the idea of light and darkness. There was darkness, and then God said, let there be light. And then all you need to do is just go and flip to the end of your Bible and go to the book of Revelation and see in chapter 21 where God says there is no more need for um, the sun and the moon because God himself and his glory is going to provide light. And so we can really grasp this idea and concept of light and darkness because we need it to survive. We need it to live. Plants live because of light and and the realities of the light of this world. We can work and labor, and all that we do is because of light. But we also know that light is essential and it doesn't take much to actually brighten even the darkest of places darkness is is a it can be pitch black dark but all you need is but a pinprick of light and suddenly that darkness is illuminated that's the power of light and that's sort of the point of isaiah chapter 9 it's this idea that all seems lost and hopeless There's a darkness covering the land. And Israel, as we learned last time when considering Ahaz and all the troubles that Judah was going through with all the different nations against them, lined up against them, there seemed to be this hopeless despair. And there was no hope. It was truly utter darkness. And yet, in the midst of that, it's not so dark at all. There is hope. That's the blessedness of Isaiah chapter 9. And it's meant to show us this season, the season of hope in the midst of despair. So we're going to look at four main points of this passage. First, we'll look about 
look at darkness itself in verses one through two. Second is consider the light in verses two and five, two, two through five. Third is the child who brings about this light in verse six. And then where this child takes us, which is triumph in verse seven. Look at this darkness again in verse two, where we learn from Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. If you look at those verbs that describe this darkness, the verbs of walked and dwelt, meaning that these people lived in darkness. It wasn't darkness that just came once in a while. There was a, this darkness that spread over the land for quite a while. And when this darkness occurs, it's oppressive. Some of you perhaps might have been in homes that have experienced darkness. I remember when uh, Sue and I, when we first moved to Chicago, we were looking for, just like Fuji's going to be doing, looking for places to live, renting homes. And we uh, went to this one apartment and the owner, he seemed like a nice enough man, but I just walked in and I just sensed darkness. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And so I said to my wife, I said, I don't think this is the place. And she said, why? What's wrong with it? And there was nothing wrong with it at all, except for a feeling, this foreboding feeling. And I do think that there is that sense that you get sometimes over places, over people, over geographic regions. And sort of the concept and the idea that we're seeing is that this darkness does happen. It does occur. And there's a reason for this darkness, according to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, here's the reason why this darkness is there. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east of, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Our land might, at least in our lives, might not be so filled with fortune tellers. But perhaps some of you are maybe a little bit more open to the superstitious. Maybe there are certain floors of a of a house that, or a, a hotel that you would say, if it was, you were on the 13th floor of a hotel, you might say, can I not stay there? You know, if uh, maybe you were looking at horoscopes or waiting to see what year, what zodiac year you were born in and maybe looking at trying to determine your future on that basis, probably not. I think most of us here are not doing that. I mean, it's more of a, a sort of something fun, you might say, rather than something that we believe in. But I think you can look at this passage and you see that the people who are full of, they're, they're going to fortune tellers like the Philistines. And the reason you go to a fortune teller is you're concerned about the future. And that's what the Israelites were like. And I want to ask you this question. Are you concerned about the future? Are you anxious about it? Is there something you're waiting upon that you're just a little fearful, a little fretful about. You're having a hard time sleeping because of the future of what is to come. And if you're that person, then perhaps you might not turn to a fortune teller, but maybe you're turning to the news. You're turning to the stock market. 
You're turning to different indicators in our society or or maybe you're going to a certain type of counseling and waiting and needing that type of assurances from a person, a thing, something. If that's our ultimate reliance, then even though we don't go to fortune tellers and get our palms read or look at tarot cards, the essence of it is still the same. It's still the idea of I'm afraid and fretful for my future. I don't know what it's going to be. And therefore I need something or someone to tell me how I should live. Another part of this though, is that we don't turn to God for that. We don't cast our cares on him as Peter says in first Peter five, seven. Instead, we cast our cares on our bank accounts, on our spouse, on advice, on, in magazines or whatever it might be, something that says, I feel better about myself because that's the problem with Israel. If you look at verse six again, in chapter two, Isaiah says, for you have rejected your people. And why has God rejected his people? Because they have rejected him first. They've turned away and they've trusted fortune tellers rather than God. And perhaps maybe we're not that different. Notice also, according to that passage, we could put that on screen again, chapter uh, two, verses six through eight. There's this idea that they have silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. If Just consider that. This is not a people who are poor and impoverished. They actually have a lot. They're prosperous. They have a lot going for them. Their land is filled with silver and gold. And on top of that, they're filled with idols. And what are the idols? Idols, according to verse 8, is that their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. That's a really important phrase at that, the end of that verse, because I think, again, we tend to think of idols as these little figurines, perhaps, and of ancient peoples who they bow down and worship them. But Isaiah's point and God's point here is you created the idols. These are not just coming out of nowhere and just popping up. They're not coming from the ground or dropping from the sky. You created them with your own fingers and you've made them because you're not sure of the future or your security and you want protection and fertility. You want prosperity. You want comfort. And so you're going to do whatever you can to shape and form what you make. And therefore by doing so, you're going to trust in that. Now, again, we don't bow down to little figurines. But what we do bow down to perhaps is all of our labors, the labors of our hands, of what we have accomplished in our world. We trust in that. We trust in education, not only our own, but our own children's education. We, we work, I mean, if you were to break up into a pie chart of how much time you spend perhaps on thinking about your children's, if, you're, if you have children, your children's education, their future, it's probably a lot of time and a lot of your resources and money. And perhaps we're doing it without turning to the Lord at all. It's, it's the work of our hands, our strategies, our plans, our resources. And it's the idea of, well, I'm prosperous. I've did it all myself. 
And so therefore, it should work as well for my own children. But the problem for the Israelites is our problem, perhaps. It's that God has rejected us, his own people, because they have not turned to him. They've been so busy, consumed with their own resources and their own time and their own prosperity that they've forgotten God. And God says, I'm going to reject. Again, look at verse six. If we could put that on screen again. Verse six says, you have rejected your people. Your. And that's a startling phrase, little possessive pronoun there that says, this is your people, God. Meaning, we could be here saying, I'm God's person. I worship the Lord. I'm a Christian. And yet, if our lives are fretful about the future, um, trying to do all we can to consume ourselves with our merit, our efforts, our finances, our education, our resources, our morality, our talents, then the question is, am I really someone who knows God? And perhaps he's rejected me. This is the darkness that is covering the land of Israel. And if we're really soul searching, it's our darkness. It's not different from us. It's the same, actually. This is where we all have been. You know, Paul describes it this way in Romans 1.21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, the same idea. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So they know about God. They know the right words to say. They know the actions that look God-like. But in actuality, they didn't ever give thanks to him. Their hearts were darkened. It's the same idea. Foolish hearts that say they know God but really don't, that's a darkened heart. And that's the same heart that we see in Isaiah 9, the darkness that is pervasive in the land. I uh, think if we're honest with ourselves, this darkness doesn't occur just for certain types of people. People who look dark, it's for all of us. We've all been there. If you're a believer of Christ, you have been there fully. Like your heart has been just as dark as any person, as dark as a person can be, the murderer, the adulterer. That heart is the same as our hearts. And any Christian who really delves deep into their soul knows that to be true. The challenge for us is that we are exactly like the Israelites. We believe that we can fix things on our own. And the stubbornness of our hearts keeps us from actually experiencing the light of the gospel. I remember when, um, when Sue and I first got married, we, uh, she would often say when you, you know, you sort of are setting up house for the first time and she would um, see how I had sort of put things and fixed things together and she would eventually say to me, uh, you know what, can you not fix things actually? Uh, let me do it instead. And of course I'm hurt. I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? Well, at that time, the, the most I would fix would be things such as putting something together that you buy from Ikea. And if you ever bought something from Ikea, you know that they give really bad instructions, just like a few different instructions, you know, 
diagrams and and I had the tendency to when starting oftentimes beginning by flipping something backwards and then you drill everything into it and by the time you get to the very end you realize oh my I did it backwards or you don't even come to that realization that my initial instinct would be they didn't give enough screws or the instructions are all wrong and so I'd force my way in and in the process break the whole thing that happened actually quite often you can see why Suo would say can you not fix things anymore can you not put things together anymore that was me but when she would say that, my instinct would be to be angry. And I would say, what do you mean? At first I'd be hurt. The fact that I feel as though she, she's demeaning my abilities. And then on top of that, I would blame Ikea or the instructions. The one thing I couldn't get is maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm not following the instructions. And usually that came because of a lack of patience, the inability to actually be teachable, to be open. And this is the reality of the darkened heart. The darkened heart is so dark that it's living in darkness and it can't tell that it's dark. And so you always operate under the idea that everything is okay, when in reality it's not. And so you insist on its own way. This is why it is so hard for a person to be able to escape darkness on their own. Because the harder they try, the worse the situation becomes. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah chapter 8. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. The instinct when we are in darkness, when we are turning away from God and depending on our own strength, is that, here's the problem with that, is that slowly but surely, we will come to the end of ourselves. Things will start to fall apart. I'll start insisting on my own way. I'll force my way in and break the whole thing. And that's what happens when you're living in darkness. You eventually falter and fail all over the place. And when it happens, and it does, eventually it does, we become angry. We're angry at other people for causing this darkness. We're angry at this person for not understanding our darkness. And we're angry most of all at God himself. That's what happens in Isaiah. Look at what happened to the people. They rebelled against God. They were doing things their own way. And as they're trying to figure things out for themselves and saying, we don't need God, all the wars and all the problems start pouring in when they were healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Things were going so well. They had no need for God. And they said, we reject you, God. And so God says, he judges them by saying, I reject you. And then they start faltering and failing and they become greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they're enraged. And they speak contemptuously. At whom? At God. It's, it's, this is the nature of darkness, is that we cause the darkness, and then we become really angry at God when we cause the darkness. Darkness cannot be overcome by trying to will yourself out of it. No matter how much you operate in the darkness, you can't create light yourself. We require 
light from outside to come in. We need that help. We need that intervention. And so we look at verses two to five and we see this light streaming in in the midst of darkness because there's no hope for Israel. And so we learn in verses four and five, it says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Darkness creates enslavement. It imprisons and enchains because it's inescapable. And the more you try to fight against it, the harder it becomes. It's like fishing, you know, when you go and fish and uh, you, you bait the hook. And the more, when a fish gets trapped, the more it struggles to escape from the trap, the tighter the hook hooks onto the fish. And they become even more entangled and ensnared into that. That's what all good traps do, right? They lure you in, you, you put your foot a little bit in, and then it snags. And then the more you fight against it, the tighter the grip. And that's darkness. So again, our instinct is when it's dark to fight against it with our own strength. But as we fight against it with our own strength, we become more ensnared by it. We become darker of heart. In fact, we're shown in Isaiah 8 that it becomes thick darkness. But we need help. And the reason why verses 4 and 5 show us this freedom is that Isaiah sort of connects this or gives the metaphor of, of, of connection to the day of Midian. For you have broken as on the day of Midian. That refers to the time where Gideon defeated the Midianites. The Midianites, and some of you can recall the story, they were a, a people who had attacked Israel. And they had sent tens of thousands of soldiers to go against Judah. And so when Gideon is forming the army of Israel, he finds about 30,000 men to fight this battle. Now, if he had fought that battle with 30,000 men, he probably would have lost. He would have lost because there was no way there, these people who were just in any way, in any type of fighting shape, which they weren't, they would not have defeated the fierce Midianites. So what God does is rather than saying, Gideon, I want you to go and get 100,000 men because you, you, there's no way you're going to face up 50,000 Midianites with your 30,000. Instead, try to recruit 200,000 men and then you can win. That's not what God does. He does the exact opposite. He whittles them down from 30,000 to 300. Now, imagine you're one of those 300 men getting ready. You were, you were 30,000. Now you're 300. And then you're told, okay, we're going to fight the battle against the Midianites. I think we would all be really questioning that type of military strategy. What's the purpose of God doing that? It's to make sure that not only Gideon, not only all the Israelites, but as well as the Midianites, everyone knows that this battle will be won by the Lord. There is no other explanation except for that. And the situation was so impossible that it required a miracle for this to take place. And the miracle would be one that only God could provide. Now take that 
sort of picture, that biblical picture, and bring that back to these verses again. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. This darkness had covered the land. It was a spiritual darkness. It it ensnared, it trapped. The more people tried to fight its way out by their own strength, the tighter the grip. The only hope would be God would have to do the impossible. In the same way that he delivered the Midianites, so too he would deliver his people from this darkness. I think this is the idea is that God is a God who always operates in grace through tremendous odds, impossible odds. And some of you have relatives whom in your mind you think this is an impossible situation, perhaps a rebellious child. Maybe you're in a marriage that you just feel absolutely stuck in and you say, there is no hope for us. We're, we're on the downslide. There's no way this is gonna be recovered. Maybe you have a, a son or daughter who is utterly rebellious just turned away from the Lord, and in your heart, you just can't ever imagine this person to ever follow Christ. Think of the most difficult situation. You have siblings, parents, children, someone who you say, this just seems hopeless. And our instinct is to either do all we can by our own strength to try to convince And sometimes that convincing leads to not a person turning to the Lord, but actually a hardening. Have you ever experienced that? Well, that shouldn't surprise us. The snare, as you press against it, it gets tighter, not looser. This isn't going to happen because you have really fine-sounding arguments or you're really smart and have some great rationale to convince someone to believe in Jesus or to turn or to change. No, that's not how it works. It requires a miracle, a true miracle. It requires this God who can take 300 men and defeat the mighty Midianites. It's the same idea of going from darkness to light. So how does that happen? It happens because we we see that verses four and five tells us that there must never be resignation. It is Resignation is the enemy of faith. It's, it's the worst part of our hearts is you get to a point where you say, it feels hopeless. Oh, well, I'm just going to give up. And so we don't even think about it anymore. It's, it's apathy, but it's even worse. It's an intentional apathy because we think there's no way God could ever deliver my child, my parent, my sibling, my brother, my sister, my coworker. They're just so far gone that I'm not even gonna pray for them. I'm not even gonna think about them. I'm not even gonna be gracious or merciful anymore to them because they've hurt me too much. They're just so far gone, I'm not gonna try. That, my friends, is resignation. And that goes against the very whole framework of why we're even in this season in the first place. The problem with resignation is that we think that we ourselves are less gone than those we love, those we care about, those we're resigned towards. Because when you think about your mom and dad who they are so resistant to Christ that you think, wow, they're just so far gone, there's no way, or a sister or brother or a child so rebellious or a 
a wife or a husband. But that assumes that I'm actually not as bad as them. Oh, my friend, but you were. You were. If you are in Christ, it took a miracle to save you. You were as dark as that person. Look at yourself. Let's start with ourselves. You know your heart the best. What is in your mind? What do you think about when there's nothing to think about? What do you not want your wife or your husband to know about you? Your child to know about, your parent to know about you. If you're really honest with your own heart, you see the darkness of your soul. Well, when you didn't know Christ, how did you turn to him? Was it because someone came up with a really great book and they gave it to you and you said, all right, that makes sense. I believe in Jesus fully with all my heart and I'm gonna give my life for him. I'm gonna deny myself, take up the cross daily and follow. No, that's not how it works. It took a miracle to save you. That same miracle power is there for that person. You think it's impossible for God to save that person, for God to cause me to love that person, to God cause me to be faithful. What I need most is to actually believe that the God who dispels darkness over Israel and over my own heart is the same God who I think it's impossible to save that person or to change. We have to have a very different view. And this season, this awaiting season, is meant to remind us, don't forget, God can do this. He's done it before, he can do it again, and he always does it again. We just have to take him at his word. And that's the challenge for us, is that we don't always take God at his word. Yesterday when I was sharing to the guys, um, you know, I'll share it to the women as well, but it is by far the number one thing we can do as a Christian, is to actually just simply believe God's word. Just, just actually believe that his word is true. If that actually took hold of our hearts, so much of our lives will be changed. Um, Ray Ortland, who's a, a pastor, and he's also he's mentored a lot of pastors, he and his wife, Jenny, they were going through what he describes as a catastrophic year in 2007. And all these different parts of their lives were just really breaking down. And so they went to David Pallison, who's a who he went to be with the Lord, but he was, a, he was a biblical counselor and he was a professor at West, Westminster Seminary. They went to him for some counsel. And in this time of what he described as a swirl of accusations and, and heartbreak, um, they got some wise counsel. And this is what he writes. He says, one suggestion David made became so significant that I've passed it along to many others since then. I can't remember his exact words, but it went something like this. Ray and Jenny, you are suffering and it isn't going to get better anytime soon. So here's an idea. Ask the Lord for a verse of scripture, a promise in the Bible to help you get through this. And when that verse jumps off the page into your heart, make it the theme of your life while you slog your way forward. However dark the nighttime sky might be, you can always look up at that North Star promise. Get your bearings again and keep going, but wallpaper your reality with the word of God. And it's exactly what all of us need most is to, in the midst of our resignation, of our slog, of our slumber, of our grievings, of our despair, to not give up. I know that's hard when you're at your lowest of places, but even eking out 
the prayer, oh God, give me a word. Give me a word that would show me hope. God will not fail to give you that word. He always provides. And most of all, he provides his word. Oftentimes, we actually say, oh God, give me the answer to my prayer, right? Give me this situation fulfilled. Um, change this circumstance so everything will be okay, so I'll feel happy. But actually, the best prayer you can ever have in the midst of struggle is not change the situation, but rather give me your word. Help me to see the promise that you have made, and may it reign true in my heart. That promise will shape not just that circumstance, but when you get through that, you will see God in a new way. You will find that you care more, not about the gifts of the giver, but the gift, the giver himself. And when you experience the giver, he cuts through all darkness and all circumstances. And he's always faithful and true. So we have to look to the means by which we have hope, which is God's promises, his word. And the way in which this is revealed most is verse six. He gives us a child. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, it's the same idea as Gideon. So Gideon is told, tear down your armies to 300 men, and you're going to defeat this mighty Midianite army. It's the same idea now in verse 6. I'm not going to, he could have said, for to you, a king is born. We do say a king is born, right? But he didn't come as a king. For to us, a rich person is given. Or the, the, the most brilliant scientist in the world who's going to rid ourselves of all plagues and all disease forever is given. That's not what's given. A child is born. A son is given. King and brilliant scientist and master of the universe makes sense in the next part, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's sort of, if you're going to control government, you should be this brilliant ruler, but not a child. And what do we see all around us in this time? We see a manger. And if we had a Christmas play, you know, there would be a little doll, baby Jesus, right? And so it's the idea of a baby. <laughs> Why is it that we are here celebrating a baby? Why didn't Jesus come at 30 years old already as a man? Why did he come as a baby? The same reason God whittled down a 30,000 strong army to 300. Because God knows us. And he knows that our instinct is always to do it ourselves. At the youngest of ages, we hear it. I can do this all by myself. When I get advice from somebody, my instinct is to say, I can do this by myself. You know, when someone comes and gives you a word of correction as a mean because they love you, what's our first instinct? To defend ourselves. I can do this by myself. I don't need your words. I don't need your help. Someone gives you a gift, I don't want that. There's an instinct to say, I can do this by myself. It's rugged individualism. And it's 
big in our society, and especially in America. But this is one area where we cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We'll never be happy. And God says, I'm going to give you a child, a baby. And I'm going to make sure that you know that this baby is the truest picture of you not being able to help yourself, to save yourself. This infant has no inherent power, no military power. He's not a superhero bursting onto the scene. But he is God. So those words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, those are words of power. This infant is no infant alone. This infant is God. And that miracle is far greater than someone rising from the grave. Christmas, actually, I used to think that Easter was the greatest, most important, and it is. It's a critical um, celebration of the church calendar year. But it's Christmas that is truly the greatest miracle of all. It actually supersedes even the power of someone rising from the grave. How does God become a man? How does word become flesh? This is the miracle of this season. And so this miracle then leads to the final triumph of verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This child was born so that you and I will have a peace where there will be no end, a kingdom where it will be established from this time forth and forevermore. This is meant for us to make an impact forever and ever, for us to experience God's glory and his peace forever and ever and ever. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We are most effective in this world when we see heaven to be true. When you see heaven to be true, you are not afraid of COVID or any type of variant. You're not afraid of walking in the tenderloin. You're not afraid of going to the ends of the earth, and going to, as uh, George just shows us so often in Africa, and going to the darkest of places. You're not afraid to be in a context where if you hear maybe that, oh, there's a haunted house somewhere. You're not afraid to go in. It's, it's actually possible. The more you have your, your mind fixed on heaven, the more you can actually be in this world and live and minister and care and sacrifice and give and serve because you know you never lose. You have everything before you and that will, can't be taken away from you. So you're most hospitable. You're willing to forgive even though someone has hurt you badly because your mind is in heaven. 
you know you have everything. So even if you were to be walked upon, and that's what so many have a hard time with. I, does being a Christian mean you're always going to be the doormat? You're going to be trampled upon? See, if you think that way, it's probably because we don't have enough of a big picture of heaven. We're not going to be trampled upon. Look at what verse 7 says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And if you're ever doubting whether that's true, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, hosts mean all of heaven, angels, seraphim, cherubim, all the power that far supersedes any power in the universe, he will do this. My friends, Christians, you're not going to be trampled on if you're gracious and kind. Yeah, it might happen in this world, but trust me, eternally, from an eternal perspective, you will be victorious. We have nothing to lose. You see, when you have that type of mentality, I have nothing to lose because I've already gained everything, then you can actually fight against the slave trade. And you can be reviled. You can lose everything in this world because you have nothing to lose. It's why the apostles, were following Jesus' death and resurrection, they went and how did these ragtag group of 12 men with now 120 suddenly go and who are fearful become so bold in the faith that almost all of them lost their lives for the sake of the church growing? And we are byproducts of that because they were so heavenly minded that they knew they had nothing to lose. And they were willing to do whatever it took for anyone to know Christ. The more we have our view of Advent Jesus has come, he will come. The more we can say, I can go forth. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. And when I am, I go back to what Ray Ortland understood, what, um, what David Pallison said, go back to the promises of God. Remember, take hold of that. Remember what he's done for you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a wonderful promise. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this season of waiting because the waiting is not in something that might happen. It has already happened. God the Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We know that to be true. And that points to a future reality that the Word will come again. And darkness that was once dispelled has been dispelled in some of us in this room. And that same darkness can be dispelled in anyone if you should intervene. We know, oh God, that you are faithful. And it is this act of remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that assures us that your promises are, have been, and will be fulfilled. So we come to this table remembering that truth. And we thank you that, Jesus, you are the light of the world. You've dispelled darkness forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.